The History of Personal Computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of the History of Personal Computing podcast. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I'll be your host today. Off onto the side, like my very own Ed McMahon, is your co-host <laughs> and mine, David Grealish. Hi, hey, David. yeah, I'm like it's... your egg. I'm your own Egg McMahon. Egg, egg McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. You know, How's it going? Egg. What brings you back here? Oh, somebody called me and says, hey, we're recording in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, late, so I had to late. hurry up and hook, hook everything up and, you know, finish cleaning off my plate. I didn't eat any faster, you know, in my life. And <laughs> Of course, it'll be, sorry here. about that. It's going to be on time for our listeners, but we're, we're rather late. I guess, should we, should we um, show behind the curtain? It's like sort of, it's not that late. I mean, but it's like, what, short of 9, 9 p.m. on a Wednesday uh, evening just before our release date Friday. Yes, we all have high caffeine drinks, so we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, let me continue here. The History of Personal Computing Podcast is your biweekly virtual guide in both audio and on the web to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. Hey, I want to argue about that. You want to argue? Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, you can have a you know, SmackDown brawl you know, if you want, but we might carry the argument a little too far. Anyway, just what is a personal computer these days? See, that's what you argue about. Well, that's just it. Personal computers continue to evolve. We'll be going over the, the significant devices one by one on this podcast. Our idea was to create a new podcast about computer history that was unique. So we decided to make a combination audio podcast, website, guide, and highlight related eBay auctions each episode to gauge current collectability and value. So each show will be about 50 minutes to an hour long, and we're going to cover two systems generally discussed in a date order. Our approach is to look at the systems from a standpoint of that of a museum curator. Like a placard for a physical museum display, we want to share and discuss just enough information to whet the appetite of the viewer, or listening visitor in this case. The podcast will supplement the blog, and the blog will add value to the podcast. Nicely done. So that word pla placard, placard, it still, still throws me off. Placard. Placard. Uh, I think that's right. Keep it short. Okay. Placard. 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 Okay. It actually seems to take less effort saying that than play card or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't I play know. card's not right. Everybody anyway. grows up in a different area <laughs> and they, they everybody has their own dialect. I mean, I think we have less than what they have, say, in England as far as dialect and uh, accents and stuff, the way they pronounce words, but yeah. still. So, David, let's open today's show with a little discussion of what we've been up to since the last show. Anything new with you? Wow, it's been a long time, hasn't it, since last show? Two weeks. It seems it like a has, long time. yeah. A little longer than our scheduled recording, but that's why we're running late on this. So, the only thing, um, what has been up? I got a couple of things, I guess. Of course, uh, we both made an appearance on the Retro Computing, computing Roundtable. So, that that's was right. what, this past Sunday, and that was fun. That's what our delay was. We were so, we're still coming Worn down from out. that high of being invited on that show. It's almost like you were there for the first time in your life. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. We did that. And otherwise, computing history related or whatever, I actually acquired something new. And it's, 
I think it's significant, and uh, and later I'll explain why I got it. For now, I'll just tell you what it is. But I bought a T-Mobile uh, Google G1, the very first Android phone. Ah, uh, that's right. I thought it sounded familiar. Which isn't that old. It came out in 2008, so it's only six years old. But you got to consider, like the iPhone, it sort of changed everything. Obviously, Android phones are huge in our culture. You know, they, they're, you know what? Actually, they're probably the most... Well, iPhones and Android phones are the most significant personal computing devices in existence now. Wouldn't you say that? Arguably? Oh, I agree. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so I have an original iPhone, and uh, so now I have. I felt like I needed to have the original Android phone. They just kind of go together. It just won't run KitKat, the version 4.4. <laughs> no. 0.4, I think it's... And it works, and it actually holds a charge, and it came in the nice packaging and everything. I didn't have to pay that much for it. I think I paid $47, and original, the person kept the original box, all the, all the materials, and the earbuds, all that stuff. So it's nice. Did you, did you power it up? Yeah. You said it works. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, uh, and I... It... I it, of course, it's not a phone. You know, it does, it's not activated as a phone, but I connected to my wireless in the house, and I was playing around with it. What, one thing, just to mention, is interesting about it is... I, I researched this, I didn't realize this, but um, it wasn't until version 1.5 of Android that it got a virtual keyboard like the iPhone. And this G1, you know, it, the, you would turn it sideways and push the screen up and it had a real keyboard, sort of like a sidekick. Yes, okay, and, and, uh, that hidden keyboard. Yeah, and what's odd about it is you get, that you have to use the keyboard. It doesn't, doesn't have a keyboard to go, come up on the screen. So that seems a little weird. Yeah, I had a slider phone once that was like that, except... Yeah, what you're talking about, it. I, I think I do remember somebody at work having one of those that flipped up out of the way. I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah. And then shortly after that, you had these slider phones that just slid the screen to the side. It didn't do anything mm -hmm. fancy with the way it did. It just slid right to the side instead of tilting it in a you know better reading angle. Well, and a lot of phones kept that paradigm for uh, quite a number of years after that. But obviously, we see that the virtual keyboard kind of finally won. <laughs> so... Well, yeah, the except iPhone in the new BlackBerry. Right. Well, BlackBerry. Who's that? I don't see them anymore. Yeah, they're they're they vintage just, now. They just introduced a new phone. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, look it up on the internet. It's it's amusing. Okay. I had Blackberries, but then I went to uh, Android and kind of forgot about Blackberry since then. So read our feedback. We got some feedback. Yeah. What? Uh, you want to take that? Oh, you want me to? Oh, that's yeah, right. It's kind ahead. of my department, isn't it? Yeah. I kind of you, you were responding to that. I just. I just copied out the text. I've been real busy with the feedback. So we got an email from Jerome Ibanes. Is that how you say it? That's how I would pronounce it. Uh, okay. Sorry if we messed that up. But thank you, Jerome. And uh, so he responded to our last show by telling us how he heard about our podcast, which was from the uh, Retro Computing Roundtable, and that he's also pining for a podcast called Linux Outlaws, which apparently hasn't put out any shows for a while, and that he's really missing uh, Earl Evans' RetroBits podcast. Which, uh, of course, Jeff, we, we heard from the man himself that there's one keying up, right? Ready to come out anytime now. And yes, do you remember who um, he said it was? Uh, he interviewed someone. Oh, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Well, listen to the Retro Bits. I'm sorry, the Retro Could Be Roundtable. That's a, that's a really good it. reason to listen to the RCR. Yeah. yeah and, uh, <laughs> and, and look, you know, uh, look for his, his new Retro Bits podcast coming out. So, anyway, let, let's, let me read what he said. Uh, real quick, he wrote, I still use my Altair as of today, but not for anything much serious, of course. Uh, it's still a good platform and it has nice games. I like text adventures, although most of them are too hard. It has a good set of programming languages. Some are somewhat limited, but that's interesting to write with memory constraints and tiny bit set. I also use my Vax quite extensively, but I admit I use the alphas more often. The Vax is nice, though, quite snappy. 
It's a 705A with 512 megabyte, pretty large compared to an average VAX. OpenVMS still has stuff not easily available on modern OSs. Ver versioned file system. Integrated uh, backup the tape software, that's very good. A good set of commercial grade computer languages like BASIC, Fortran, COBOL, C, ADA, ALGOL, LISP, and all. And its security features are much beyond any modern Unix-like. Uh, also use a lot of diverse old stuff, quite as entertaining. But the list is too long. That's quite a bit. Now, boy, it seems like that system uh, was well ahead of its time. I'm looking at that language list and I keep picturing like playing that Tron video game that every round went up and had a different language that I didn't recognize at first. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but aren't those the characters from the Tron? <laughs> I thought that, yeah. I don't know. If, yeah. Might, might as well be. <laughs> There's a lot of programs running around there. They might as well be uh, compiler programs. <laughs> right. So that's good. We have, we have some uh, good feedback. I mean, it's one, but it's still good feedback and we appreciate uh, Jerome taking the time to respond. Now we have our first addition to make we mismentioned something in our in our last podcast we want to make a minor correction or addition to the information yeah i'm not we sure if we if we said it i don't know if we even mentioned or we didn't mention it or we or it was we an it ebay wrong. item so we just and, felt and like yeah we need to sort of make it we clear. made a certain assumption uh, about it and we were we were wrong on it we had talked about the altair 680 in an ebay auction and we were thinking that was basically just sort of like a baby altair but it, it is different it does not have a Z80 or Intel microprocessor, and it. it actually has a Motorola 6800 CPU. So it, okay. it's a different uh, hardware architecture, but in in a similar form factor too. But it is S100, or, um, or you could because that the one that was on eBay, you could add the expansion. I guess maybe it was S100, but it didn't come with an expansion capability, and you could add that to it. Yeah, it did have a, a weird riser card the way it worked in order to add S100 cards. Who knows? We may be correcting ourselves next week <laughs> on, on that on this comment. Well, just to say it out um, loud, I was thinking, I was picturing in my mind the Southwest Technical Products computer or SWITS, and it is what's called the SS50 bus. And I don't know if I said this out loud or whatever, but I was thinking this machine had that bus, and that's why I was like all amazed about it having S100 expansion. But in any case, so it it doesn't. It doesn't have the SS50 bus. Was not you know mitts. But it was still fun if somebody had one of those. They can still play around with the switches. They'll just, uh, you know, be 68. It'd be Motorola-based. Who knows? It might even be easier to program than uh, Z80-based or Intel-based. Uh, Essentially, using the front panel on it, though, it would it would have been about the same experience as a, a regular Altair, wouldn't it? For the most yeah, part? there were there were fewer switches. I think some uh, extraneous control switches. But for the most part, you can basically switch in the address, switch in the data write the value to memory and then continue on until you have a fully operational program. Hmm. All right. So that takes care of some of the preliminary work. Let's get into the meat of this podcast. I'll start with the first computer we're going to cover. It's the MSI 8080. Nice one. That is a good one. Very colorful too. The MSI 8080 was arguably, there we go, arguing again, the first <laughs> personal computer clone. With the large and growing success of the MITS Altair 8800 early in 1975, IMS Associates, Inc. of San Leandro, California, was able to capitalize on its success with an improved copy. Like the Altair computer, the MSI utilized the S100 bus, also an Intel 8080 microprocessor, and a front panel with LEDs and switches. You could utilize the switches to read and write to memory locations, 
single step the CPU or even stop it completely. The LEDs would blink according to the values inside the address and data buses. The MSI 8080 could run all of the same programming instructions and later the software when it became available. IMS Associates improved just about every aspect of the Altair's design with a higher specification power supply, an anodized aluminum chassis, more S100 expansion slots, and a better front panel with superior paddle switches. And that's the one unique thing that you, you see with those. they got those bright, colorful blue right. and red switches that are easy to grab, and you know you're switching them. And anyway, Other I'll than continue. it's kind of prettier right off the bat, but that's, that's also, I think, because of the, the, you know, the blue and then the red paddle switches and all that. And it was in color. <laughs> yeah. IMS Associates was founded in May 1972 by William Millard as a computer and engineering firm based out of his home. In 1974, IMS was contacted by a General Motors car dealership, which wanted to computerize with the workstation system. Millard was aware of the new microprocessors being manufactured by Intel when in late 1974, the Altair article appeared in Popular Electronics magazine. Millard and his team tried to order a few Altairs, but MITS wanted payment in advance and they couldn't deliver for at least 90 days. Since their only other choice would be to buy a much more expensive mini computer, they decided to build their own or lose a big client. After getting the opportunity to inspect an Altair, IMS Associates decided to correct the obvious defects and build a more rugged commercial grade microcomputer. Millard went on to incorporate a franchise business called The Computer Shack, which later changed its name to Computerland. Oh, that's where that came from. Um, that's where I bought my first computer, at a Computerland. Oh, did you really? Yep. Oh, it was Vic the computer? Yeah, it was oh. Vic-20. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. I didn't know they, they were a Commodore dealer. They, they were. They, had they were kind of everything stuff. dealer, huh? They, they were. I think they had Pet and App, or, or Commodore and Apple and uh, a couple other ones later. Then they became Mac, I think, for the most part. But anyway, I, I digress. He started stripping MSI of its financial resources to put into Computerland, and bankruptcy came quickly for MSI. I guess he spread himself a little too thin. Computerland went on to become one of the most important retailers of the IBM PC and Apple. However, after IBM introduced the PS2 line and the clones began grabbing most of their market share, the franchisers all joined together in a bitter legal battle with Millard, and he lost in the end. So that was, that was definitely a big fight in the industry. Yeah. And one other interesting fact about the MSI, um, though many fans may not be aware of it, the MSI 8080 was featured in the 1984 movie War Games and will always be a star along with Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. Which, of course, is unusual that the film came out in 84, you know, so filmed in 83, and that was a yep. rather old computer for him to be using. I think there's even people wondering why they had such an old computer. Uh, but then some other people think it's not really that old during yeah. that time period yeah. I mean, to us an old computer is when you bought one today it's six months later and, and it's old but back then you know it could have been a hand-me-down from his uncle you know you never know i and think it just made a natural a more hollywood-like computer at the time because it was more impressive as far as uh having blinky lights and you know it was imposing so it looks like yeah. the kid was a real genius with all this computer stuff that yeah like he had his own mainframe because then you had the whopper with all its lights right, and everything all its, all its blinking lights <laughs> <laughs> well, the MSI, um, well, even by early 80s standards, I mean, it had a clock rate of 2 megahertz, which was faster than some of the, you know, other 8-bit computers that were out at the time, the right. the Ataris and, and Commodore and stuff. Apple. Um, and, and Apple. 
And let's see, 4K to 64K of RAM, you couldn't argue too much with that capability. And it ran basic and CPM. So, you know, they were doing basic and CPM before Commodore was doing basic and CPM with their Commodore 128. Plus, you can hook it up to paper tape, cassette, floppy drive. It was a very versatile machine for what it was. And because it was in its uh, anodized case, it was very sturdy. So maybe maybe it was there in, in 1984 because that would have lasted until 1984. Yeah. And I think we, we mentioned last show about, so of course, CPM had become the de facto standard operating system. And so the MSI and like the next machine we're going to talk about, and of course, the Altair. And there was a bunch of these machines in the you know late middle to late 70s were they were all the same as far as that they could all run cpm there are minor differences between that and once you're running cpm they could I, actually i don't know if it's 100 percent right you can just run any cpm software but for the most part it was standardized right CPM as long software. as it was compiled for the processor yes okay yeah all the all the internal memory pointers and and memory banks and, and, and all the other configurations for cpm remained the same so uh, programs can operate properly as long the programs compiled for the CPU. So, you know, somebody created, you know, CPM for a Motorola processor. You couldn't run that software without recompiling it for a Z80 based microprocessor. Right. Oh, I wanted to mention Jeff that, um, darn it. Where is it now? Was you're reading the, the backstory? Oh yeah. The, about the, about, um, computer land and computer shack. So sort of a side story is, uh, obviously, Computer Shack sounds sort of familiar because they're Radio Shack. So actually, the reason they changed their name is because Radio Shack pressured them into changing their name because they, in fact, uh, felt Computer Shack was too close to their own name. Because they already had something in the works. There's just a lot of backstory to the whole rise and fall of IMS Associates, which then ultimately became MSI, and then, and then of course, Computerland, and then MSI going out of business, and then ultimately Bill Miller getting sued, and just that whole... And, there's, and actually, I put in the show notes, there's a link to a book that I really recommend. I really enjoyed it. I, I did read it a long time ago, so I haven't read it recently, but I really liked it. Excuse me. And it's called Once Upon a Time in Computerland. And it tells this whole story. A nice and, backstory book, huh? Yeah. And, and you can pick it up really cheap in the used marketplace, like next to nothing. But another interesting thing that was going on in the company, IMS Associates, is Bill Millard was like, um, he was really big into something called EST. Have you ever heard of that? Doesn't sound familiar to so, me. So EST, and it was like a motivational self improvement, some type of corporate okay. hippie thing, All right. <laughs> <laughs> or something. But That's it's about people. Anything, yeah. So look it up, anybody, if you get a chance. But they did like weird therapies, like yelling therapy and stuff, and people getting stuff off their like. Uh, are you a Seinfeld fan? I've watched it a few times. Well, uh, you know, there's lots of classic episodes. There's one, particularly the one about um, Festivus. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> and they have the airing of grievances is like one of the things they celebrate in a Festivus and a uh, George Costanza's father. Like they're all sitting at a table. You know, this is a holiday, and he goes, "I got a problem with you people," and he starts yelling and stuff. But it's like weird stuff in Est where you would they would do this in corporate meetings, like you know, like that was considered healthy according to the teachings. Like you know, let it all out, you know, tell people what you really think and crazy stuff. So. Anyway, I recommend that book. Well, apparently that didn't work for him because he, his stuff went bankrupt eventually. Yeah. Well, there was some outside influence on that with the IBM clones and the market yeah. shifting. Yeah, which that's going to be, a, you know, as we read about more of these computers, you know, the, the shift into the early consumer machines like in 1977 and then, of course, with IBM PC in 81 and, you know, the IBM PC 
DOS machines and clones killing everything. This is going to be a common theme, <laughs> right? As far as what yeah. happened to a lot of these computers. We'll just insert that audio into future shows. We won't have to record as much. <laughs> um, there's also other resources, too, that um, we have links for. You, you had mentioned an article by Stan Veet. Yeah, really good. And, and another article that, I guess, details the War Games MSI usage. Oh, right, right. And th that's a whole story there. Check it out. And I didn't mean to write uh, that guy again, Thomas. I'm trying to think what his name is now. Um, anyway. But, you know, supposedly that, that machine is supposed to have been auctioned like a couple of years ago. And I'm not sure what where it stands now. And then I think I Thomas heard... Thomas Fisher. Yeah. I, uh, Fisher Fritas was the name, name of the company that owns the MSI trademarks and all that. And I'm not sure the status of now what, what's up with the War Games MSI. But it's a very interesting site and that particular Also, it's page. about that particular machine and what it's gone through. Is yeah, and then, and then it has a lot of other information about the history of MSI. And, and for years, he was building like a new MSI and clones. And I don't know what, what's become of all that stuff, but it's interesting. We just have to find all those. Lots of drama things. about the MSI. Yeah, it's amazing the backstories on a lot of these things. You know, you it you can almost make a movie out of some of these backstories. And of course, movies for people who would actually sit down and watch them. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. not it's not pop culture, but to the right people, it's some good information, and no, it would it be great to see it. It can't be a movie, Jeff. It's not about Apple. It can only make no, movies about it? Apple. <laughs> yeah, only Apple's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I'm kidding. By the let way, me write uh, that, let me write that down so I know because it hasn't been pounded in me enough. No, my, my wife's telling me <laughs> Apple, 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 and I'm like, you know, yeah, no, it's no. getting kind of old. Frankly, I'd love to see more movies about you know about frankly this computer land and Insight story. I think it'd be really interesting. That would be really great. Well, you know what? That's our next project. We'll make a movie. Yeah, we'll just get somebody to you know fund it. I'll, I'll be Bill Millard. There, there you go. I got a lot of problems with you, Jeff. <laughs> Start writing the script. So, have you ever um, owned an inside or like actually no. seen one, had one? Only one? seen one in pictures. Oh. Uh, unfortunately, I I uh, saw the Altair, but not not the inside. It was uh, I owned one one time, and I had it. It was actually an early acquisition, which I think I spoke about in the last show. So that big haul I got in El Paso, Texas. Yes. And so I, I hung on to that for quite a number of years, and I only sold it out of desperation. And uh, it it ran. It was uh, trying to think. What um, one thing interesting about the MSI and a lot of the early S100 machines is most people did not have like um, pure machines, so they didn't have Altairs with all MIT stuff in it, MSIs with all you know IMS stuff in it, and so on. So I think my oh, they MSI, were Frankenstein computers, yeah. Yeah, so I think mine actually had like, uh, it has Z80 in it that you could switch from two to four megahertz. And I think it was made by Processor Tech. I'm not sure now. But the story, you know, so I, I, it was just such an attractive, neat machine. And I had it for a long time, but I ended up selling it. Actually, I got a, we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and I got a job in Richmond. And uh, one of our cars, the transmission had gone out in it. And um, I ended up, I think maybe, did I say this in the last show? I ended up huh. selling it. That's just I've told the story. So anyway, I ended up selling it on eBay, and this is like late 1998. And there was like a there was a little um, trend on eBay where these machines are really worth a lot there. So I sold that inside for like twenty four hundred dollars. Oh, so you got it during your peak? Well, yeah, yeah and the end to... at the end of uh, 1998, and that fixed our transmission and helped us move and everything else. So it was so that was good. It's always nice, yeah, if you have a sacrifice of a one of your collection pieces that you get the most for it. And you I know, assume it went to a collector who valued it. I would think so for, you know, over 2000 bucks. 
So you never bothered to find out where it ended up? Well, no, I remember, I mean, it was an, it was an eBay bidder. So I could only uh, assume but, it was somebody that, you know. Okay. But that's the last you heard of it when, yeah, when, oh, yeah. when it, when the UPS guy took it out of your hands your, yep. your, your, as you were clawing on the box and <laughs> back in the day of cheap shipping. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't and, want to and, deal with that now. And no PayPal fees and the exorbitant eBay and fees shipping and fees. That yeah. That's right. Well, they, they know the market now, so it costs a lot to ship, ship stuff anymore. Well, you know, at least you got to play with one. Um, now other people can kind of play with one too through an emulator. if They want to, I only found one emulator which seems to be worthy, and this was actually um, hinted to us by by Earl Evans from the Retro Computing Roundtable mm-hmm. and RetroBiz podcast, and it's called Z80 Sim, and it's de- unfortunately it's designed to run under Linux natively. Uh, however, I think there are ports for OS X or OS X. I don't know how you guys pronounce that stuff, um, <laughs> and and Windows, but it. By the pictures, I didn't get a chance to play around with it much. Um, just didn't have any time. But I, if I do work with it, I will post it on our website how to use it or at least how to get started in it. You know, but that would course, be a, a good additional show kind of thing. Maybe we could do short little – I mean, I know it's, it's, it's audio, but yeah, – Sideshow, yeah. But maybe yeah. we could try um, – Or record a video. Maybe we'll try something new in that sense. Yeah. Um, but it – it looks really nice because it simulates an actual terminal uh, or like a CRT terminal, and it even simulates green bar paper output, which is kind of cool. You to play with the front panel switches like on a real MSI, and if I got it correctly, if I understand correctly, it can actually be viewed in like a 3D environment, so you can turn it around and look at it, but at the same time, you can still play with the switches like you were standing in front of the real thing. And it'll also run CPM software from disk images. There's repositories out there with CPM software. I think I posted one already in an emulator page for the uh, Altair. And speaking of Altair, there's also an Altair version of this kind of um, emulator. So I, I can't wait to actually play around with it. And I'll, I'll put more information out on the website as I, as I learn about it. But it looks really nice. And I'm hoping that there, there is a Windows port uh, or if not, maybe I can try to do one myself, but I'm not making any promises. Don't promise. So now, Jeff, we're going to move on to the Processor Technology Soul 20 Terminal Computer. <laughs> That's its full name. So it's a mouthful. The Altair, the MSI, and then later many other microcomputers created a cottage industry. MITS and IMS Associates only offered a limited number of products and upgrades, if you could get them, given the high demand for them at the time. Gary Ingram and Bob Marsh, two friends in Berkeley, California, saw this as a business opportunity. Marsh, who was an active member of the Homebrew Computer Club, would hear complaints about the Altair at every club meeting. So with Ingram, they decided to form a company, and it was called Processor Technology Incorporated. Their first product was a reliable, static 4K memory board for the Altair, as they knew that MITS was producing an unreliable dynamic version. I think we had mentioned that last time. I don't know if I got that reversed or not, but what I just said is absolutely correct because I double-checked it. Because actually, I kind of thought it was the other way around. So duh, but anyway, that's that's right. So the more reliable later board were the static ones, which did not need an electrical refreshing like the earlier dynamic. Maybe we said it right last time. But it was know. cheaper to make. Yeah. It was like cheaper yeah. to make the dynamic ones. So, uh, so their first product was a reliable static 4K memory board for the Altair. 
uh, as they knew that MITS was reducing it unreliable. I already said that. Okay. Processor Technologies 4K RA RAM board became an almost instant hit and launched the company into a thriving business. Ingram and Marsh were then able to move out of their garage workshop and into a large industrial facility. A story that was told later on with another computer. <laughs> yeah. And a few other ones, I think. The Soul 20 computer arose out of a lineage of products for processor technology. The computer went on to produce a single board computer called the Soul PC. Then came the Soul 10 with the Soul PC as a motherboard, but also included a case, keyboard, and power supply. It just lacked the vertical expansion backplane uh, that then the Soul 20 later had. And it had a smaller power supply and a simpler keyboard. Uh, very few Soul 10 computers were sold or even known to exist. The name, uh, am I even saying it wrong, Jeff? I Saul. think it's pronounced Saul. In my head, it's Soul, though. So I'm going to change now. Soul right. is the yeah, name of Sun. It's spelled the same way. Uh, and But hey, let's just roll with it. It's fun. <laughs> the name Saul is thought to mean either the wisdom of Solomon or simply that it was named in honor of the editor of Popular Electronics magazine, Les Solomon. The computer made its first appearance on the cover of that magazine in July 1976. Electronics engineer and homebrew computer club president Lee Feltzenstein designed the Soul 20. He went on to design the Osborne One portable, Osborne One portable computer five years later. The Soul 20 was originally designed as just a simple terminal to communicate with other devices, hence its full name. Oh, uh, okay. They just decided not to scratch the name or shorten yeah. it. Maybe they had already made those little, uh, you know, board things that go on the front of it or whatever. The little label. The computer enjoyed a moderate success in sales until sometime late in 1977 when competition arose with a fury delivering the big three consumer machines, the Apple II, Commodore PET, and the Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 1. Along with poor business practices and a failed expensive new product, the Helios II disk memory system, processor technology went out of business in May 1979. Another one bites the dust. You know, the, 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 the Sol-20... It looks like a really nice computer. I'd love to have one in my collection. It is uh, really nice. It's my wife's it, favorite one. It's compact enough, but yet still has an S100 backplane, although I think it's sideways. And it just it looks very useful. If I was going to have an S100 system, um, I would prefer the Sol 20 because it just kind of has everything you'd want to play around with with an S100 system. Yeah, and I think, um, does it get credit for being the first uh, integrated machine with a keyboard, or at least it was it was right in there, you know, really early it's on. It's about that time, yeah. So, you know, for a 1976, you know, let's face it, shipping really in probably quantity in 77, early 77, it was um, it was one of the first of these type of machines, an S100 machine, where, so it was integrated with a keyboard, but it also it was integrated as far as like its uh, processor and a lot of the other supporting chips, things that we take for granted now in all computers, you know, things that are all built in versus, you know, the earliest machines, Altairs and M-Size and all that, they were basically just big cases with power supplies and, and you had a to bus backplane. Yeah, you had to put your peripherals externally. Yeah, so you had a card for everything, processor, ROM, RAM, I.O., the whole bit. That's true. It's just that long name, processor technology, SOL 20 terminal computer. Yeah, you know, they just need to make it a little bit bigger, like processor technology, Sol 20, terminal computer, junior, <laughs> Esquire, deluxe. And yeah. they're so, going to make it long, make it go all out. So here's some points, more points about it. Is, um, it was introduced and announced in July 76 on the cover of the magazine. It had an Intel 8080, so just like the, the MSI and, again, most of the machines at the time, uh, at 2 megahertz. It could go from 1 kilobyte of RAM to 64. Of course, 64 is the max for any 8-bit 
microprocessor That's until correct. later on they came up with like ram swapping sort of tricks bank switching yeah bank switching uh s100 bus basic cpm uh the storage is pretty much listed as uh you know if you if you ever could afford one of these things a paper tape reader and then later on maybe cassette and then floppy drive if you could afford that it was uh $995 as a kit and $2,129 assembled, which wow, I was surprised. That's a wide, yeah, wide range there. I didn't think it was quite that. That was fairly expensive. Well, considering everything's all on the same board, uh, there's probably a lot of parts that had to go go in there. And I wonder how many of the kits actually got built by people and then didn't work because I'm sure it had to be very complex. And you found where it is not pronounced soul, like S-O-U-L. It's more pronounced like saw sounds, so sol. Saul and Saul. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I want to mention the way they designed these systems. They used what was called personality modules. Yeah. That's give, a give the computer a, uh, an interesting, basically to make the computer what it is. So a personality module is kind of like what we know today as a BIOS in a, in a computer. I think it's uh, not exactly the same thing, but it, it pretty much can get the credit as being a primitive version of that. Yeah, so with, with the same kind of hardware, a personality module could make it a SOL 20, a, person, a personality module could theoretically make it a SOL 10, or maybe anything else they wanted to create in the future. They just change a personality module, and it becomes that computer, but with you know common hardware. About this, this SOL 10 or the PC, other than just what we've, you know, we've talked about here, I didn't find a whole lot other than just it being mentioned in the history yeah, of Yeah, it's, it it's, it's there. It's, it's, it was mentioned, but there's no real detail and I couldn't find anything uh, about anybody actually using one. Yeah, it probably sold in really small quantities. These guys, you know, were also members of you know the Homebrew Computer Club. So their very early market <laughs> was, you know, a hundred people or something. Like the Apple One sorta, you know. And then there's that Soul PC, which uh, as you mentioned, kinda um, made it all single board instead of a bus system. But that that there's not much information on that either. So it, it seems like the Sol 20 is when you think of the processor technology Sol. The Sol 20 is really what everybody would be familiar with if they've had any knowledge of it whatsoever. And as far as resources, there's a website dedicated to the Sol 20 called Sol20.org, and it's a I'll great have to resource. remember that somehow. <laughs> and then you found an interesting article um, about its use in 1982 at the Atlantic. Yes. Yep. Living with a computer, basically a guy tells a story of his usage of a SOL 20 computer. It was an interesting read. I read it several weeks ago. It's not quite fresh in my mind right now, but it's, it's a story. It's a period story. It was written back, back in 82, so you, you read it with your mind back in that time. Yeah. You know, there weren't many computers out, and it's just it, it was a big deal, so this guy wrote the story, which you know, is a big deal for anybody who's you know impressed with getting their own computer, and it's a very lengthy article. So the guy spent a lot of time. I hadn't had a chance to check it out myself, but I will. It is very long. The initial page—it's well, actually two pages—but the initial page is a really long scroll. Um, I mean, it's very long. And I hadn't added it to the show notes, but um, there's only like maybe a dozen sort of detailed articles by Stan Veet that are online. He actually had started a webpage sort of in the mid 2000s, whatever. And, you know, before he died and, uh, but anyway, he also has an excellent, a fairly detailed, long story, you know, more of the story and everything article too about the processor technology, Sol 20. So, so I'm going to add that 
in the show notes. Uh, I remember one thing from this article um, in the Atlantic. The guy got the Sol 20 because apparently his secretary left. Huh. So he needed something to speed up or to allow him to be quick enough editing his letters and you know anything he needed to do for business. Right. So a computer with um, word processor software at the time, what was it, electric pencil or something like that? Oh, yeah. Um, allowed him to take over for where you know he didn't have his uh, secretary or assistant anymore. Hmm. Oh, then he got rid of her? No, I think she left uh, for some something else. Oh, he. I guess uh, I'm glancing through it real quick. Um, picked a temporary secretary agency out of the phone book and greeted by a gum-chewing young woman named Darlene, uh, explained what needed to be <laughs> yeah. done. And then five hours after her arrival, he saw that... The product uh, of her efforts. I'll tell you yeah. what, I'll let you... It's a really good read. I'm, I'm, I'm really glancing through, and it, um, there was, I guess, a lot of stuff that needed to be done, and either she panicked or he panicked or somewhere it didn't work out. So, you know, had, had to let her go, paid her $49 in wages... And he had some manuscripts left that he needed to finish. So huh. instead of doing it on a typewriter, he got this computer to do it electronically. So yeah, this actually looks really good. And at the end, he ties it up with um, he's got he's got like a list of how to your first step in avoiding several of the major mistakes or whatever. He yeah, he had to jump out. into it. So yeah, he had to jump into it. So he got what was what he could, worked with it, and then realized later on, you know, there's probably better options, mm -hmm. and how he would have done things differently. Yeah, it's. It, it is a good read. Like I, I read it a couple weeks ago, but I'm also taking classes. It has me reading a lot of stuff, and this stuff just filled it right out of my head. So now, have you ever seen a, a Saul in in person, or put your hands on one? Or no, but it's one of those things. I know, you know, I think they actually have one at the uh, Computer Age um, Museum. I think or Info Age Museum Info, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think they do. And 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 I'm going to pay attention to it more when I go to VCF East 10 or 10.1 or 10.15 or whatever they call it next year <laughs> and and um, maybe even ask if I can try it out. I've had three of them pass through my hands <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and um, I Buy low, sell high, right? I actually did an auction. So early on, it, I was still in El Paso and it just started the Historical Computer Society. It was all really early on. You know, this is before really the internet really existed still as far as mainstream. And I played around, I'm starting to remember this now, is uh, AOL had this, so I was on AOL and CompuServe, and AOL had just come out with like their very first, oh, they had had an early, like where, where you had, could get internet access, web access through them. And, uh, yeah. and then they had like a real simple like web page program where you could make up web pages. Yeah. And I used that, and I had my own auction, and I auctioned some other old computer history stuff you know, computers and different peripherals and ephemera and stuff. And I auctioned a soul. <laughs> and um, I think I had two of them at the time and I auctioned one and I kept one. Um, anyway, and I think I sold it for like $450 or something, which was, you know, pretty good and very fair at the time. I'm going to say it's probably 94, something like that. But, uh, and then I, eventually I had to sell the other one. Oh no, I gave one away. That's right. To a, another collector we traded. Okay. Anyway, I've had a couple and they're they're really neat. I said my wife it's it's always was her favorite old computer that I ever had. Yeah, you know, it's got the wooden sides and it's just it's a nice piece and nice looking you know computer. Looks like the keyboard was comfortable enough to use. Yeah. And it probably felt like a real typewriter um electric typewriter or something so it probably had it probably had that nice clackety clack sound that that muted clack 
uh, not like a Model M keyboard for an IBM PC, but kind of a muted clack mm-hmm. like on a TRS-80 Model 3 or 4. But I'd say that. purely on looks, I think I think the inside looks so good. Even though, I think blue is just does it. And then in the case of the Saul, because of the wood sides and the blue color, I just think, I don't know why, I think that just really clicks with most people. Still, it's a single-piece uh, S100 unit that, mm-hmm. well, minus monitor, but it that makes it nice on its own. Yeah, It's big, but you can drag it out, hook it up to some output, and, and do something with it. Yeah, because it, it was bigger than, like, say, an Apple II, I, which it makes me think of, even though, you know, there's other machines like that. The Apple II was actually kind of big, you know, in its original design, but had all that room for expansion, too. Yeah. Yeah, the only way I can play with one right now is through emulation. Yeah, so go into that. What did you find? I found something, uh, once again, kind of last minute, um, and I will be playing with this more. Hopefully I can get it to work. Uh, The only I was going to report that I couldn't find any decent emulator for the Sol 20, but I did find this one called Solace, S-O-L-A-C-E. It stands for Sol Anachronistic Computer Emulation. Kind of catchy. And you can actually get that or see it at the Sol20.org website that was mentioned earlier. I don't know why I didn't see it until just now, even though uh, the resources, you know, the Sol20.org was found uh, last week, actually. Um, but it is a single executable runs in Windows. Uh, it's a single execut- executable that also supports virtual cassettes and floppies like most decent emulators should. It even has an integrated debugger, so if you really want to work the internals of the Soul hardware from a programming standpoint, you have that capability too. You can, I guess, track or watch the Z80 processor in action. But I'm guessing it was last updated in 2005, so it may not run on new versions of Windows, even with compatibility mode set. But I will find out because I'm definitely going to try this out. Because my other alternative to running a Sol 20 emulation was in that all-in-one emulator called Mess um, M-E-S-S. Multiple. Yeah, I've heard of that for a lot of years now, and I, I really need to look at that someday. I don't know. If I remember, the acronym Mess stands for Multiple Emulator Super System, and it works like MAME, where there's a lot of cores in yeah. one application, and and Mess is a lot of pro or computer cores that you just launch the core that you want and then you would provide your virtual disks or, or, or whatever to make it run. And I tried getting the Sol 20 to run. I can actually launch it and I had the ROMs that I needed to get it to work, but I could not get it to run. It kept giving me an error until I found out later that that portion of the emulation, the Sol 20 portion, is not working properly. So it's there. It's not working properly. I don't know if there are any open source programmers currently working on it or what, uh, but it's there but doesn't operate. So I guess it's a placeholder to remind somebody sometime in the future, let's get this fixed. Let's get this running. I'd love to see it working in that because that puts all your emulation at one spot. Yeah. But we're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just I'll start programming now. But still, the, the Sol 20 is an S100 system. So if you just want to see what an S100 system does, you know, any other S100 emulator would give you the same behavior. It just won't give you the look. Right. You know, the fonts may not look 
properly emulated, it may be completely different for any other S100 system, but you should still be able to run CPM software in any other S100 emulator. And you can say, yeah, this is what I used to do on my soul, even though you're emulating, you know, a K Pro. <laughs> right. Well, again, I mean, and also once you're behind, like once you're behind an operating system, then it's not that different. Yeah, with, with the S100 and CPM stuff. Now, unless I really wanted to spend some money on one, this is a nice segue to our eBay auctions. Oh, yeah, let's see what you found. Um, I found somebody sold a Sol 20 working in good shape, and it looks really nice. Um, it sold for $830 on three bids. So there must have not been a lot of people going after it, or maybe there's only a few people that were willing to spend that much for it. Yeah, because um, that's surprisingly it's pretty cheap. Yeah, but the the pictures are just grand. I mean, it's clean on the inside. It was clean on the outside. Uh, there's the famous wood grain sides. The, was it four? Was it four or five? One, two, three, four, five slot S100 expansion. Um, I think serial and printer output on the back. Or is it, yeah, serial. That's probably for terminal. Um I forget some of the details. They are not owning one. Of course, I don't know all the details. And they show the guy hooking it up to a Commodore 1902 monitor or 1702 monitor and showing the screen. Also, maybe it's composite out or you have to put a composite video card in it. Hmm. Either way, it was in really nice condition for that price. I guess if I had money to burn I, and space for it, um, I'd consider that if I saw the market was the same way, but there wasn't a lot sold recently, so I couldn't no, find that's the market. Well, in fact, the reason I, I'm only half paying attention, because it turns out I picked, if I, I picked the same one because that is the only one that's in eBay history right now. So so actually, I'm changing mine to a current one because there's no other choice right now. And what have you got for, are you going to change yours? Okay. Yeah. That's fine. No, go, go ahead, though. You can go ahead and then yeah, with the inside. I'll go with, I'll go with my other one. And for an MSI-based auction, I didn't go look for an MSI. I looked for something that somebody who already has an MSI would probably want uh, an auction for an original blue paddle lever for the front panel of an MSI 8080. And this is one lever. Uh, the MSI has at least, what, 16 huh. plus 8, 24 levers in varying colors, blue and red. But this original one sold for $9. Oh, yeah. I see there's a few other people that have some too, which are, I'm assuming, do I dig in here? That's a real one. Yeah, an yeah. It says original. Yeah, and these other ones are probably reproductions. Yeah, there are reproductions. So I guess somebody with a 3D printer could print these. Yeah. And they would be useful. So there you go. If you want to build your own MSI, um, you can start buying all your paddles right now. Huh. And, you know, the uh, Thomas Fisher. Oh. Yeah, I know that he was selling those. And maybe he still does. I don't know. Thomas Todd Fisher. He was selling, what? like, other parts and stuff like that. Because I think he, he bought up, like, whatever was remaining of all that stuff. Okay. Well, see, there's lots of companies out there that will sell manufactured front panels. You can actually design your own, have them uh, manufactured for a decent price. They're not cheap. You'll, you'll pay somewhat of a premium, but it's a lot easier than if you tried to do it all yourself. And then you get these pat paddles like this, and y you can almost build your own MSI case if you were so inclined. Hmm. He's got an Just, 8080 processor for $5. There's a start. <laughs> Five bucks. Does it even work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It says for faster faster upgrade for 8080, 8080A. It's a P8080A 
one. Anyway. Well, you have some auctions you found. Yeah, so so I found an MSI 8080 that sold recently. So we both chose one of each here. So this one is MSI 8080, early S100, personal computer, MITS Altair clone, 1975 computer. And it sold from uh, for $14.99, which, hey, look, that looks too bad here. Has some bumps and scratches. Yeah, so someone just bought it. It was in Beverly Hills, California. There's some good pictures here, but it looks not super up close here, but it looks pretty clean. Well, now, if they just waited for this episode to go out, we would have had more people interested in it. He could have probably sold it for more. Oh, it's got it's got six boards in it. Hey, one of those looks like, I think that's like an S100 tester. You can like te- see how it's got like the... Has the pass-through, so you can yeah. hook, hook the boards up above. Yeah, really neat looking. I mean, it's so different from, you know... Oh, Austin yeah, it is a tester. Wow, those are... It looks like a bunch of RAM boards. Yeah. Maybe so. Does he list out what it is? But I would think $1,500 is... Oh, wait. Here's the thing, though. It's a lot of... I am selling this computer as a display piece only with no guarantee that it will function. Wow. So so apparently, uh, you know, it's not working right now. Oh, it has not been powered up for almost 30 years. Oh, so he's basically saying that, which is good advice, or it could be a clever way to get out of it. <laughs> but <laughs> that you know, he, does, he doesn't think it can tolerate the power surge, which... You probably know more about this than I do, Jeff, but I've heard this before. That I guess that you're supposed to apply power really slowly, right? I don't you, know how you can with a single switch. Are you oh, but, Okay, you're talking about like if you wanted to bring it up to power, yeah, you could probably hook it up to a Variac, which is basically a large adjustable transformer. Oh, he mentions that, yeah. And yeah, you can bring up power really slow. You would turn the unit on with the Variac turned down. I actually have one of those. I use them for my antique radios so I don't blow them up plugging them in. Oh, okay. Um, and, and you turn it up really slowly, and it just brings the voltage from 0 to 120 volts. So if it gets up to a certain amount and things start burning or smoking, you, you didn't apply full power to that and cause more catastrophic failure. Um, hmm. So how would that work? You know, With this kind of power supply, uh, um, a linear power supply, that's probably okay to do that with. But if it was a um, – what's the other kind of power supplies out there? The switching power supplies, like the modern ones. Yeah. You know, you can't really do a variac with those. I don't think they behave as well. They just kind of want to be powered on and powered off. But you know, if if I'm wrong, somebody feel free to correct me. Uh, send us feedback on that. But linear power supplies, they work with. You know, they take an input voltage, they step it down, and then they run it through filters and 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 rectifiers, and you get a DC voltage on the other end. So yeah, you can run that through a a variable transformer, and yeah, bring the power up slowly so the caps don't you know, snap on you right away. Cause those look like some big capacitors in there that would make an awful yeah. loud noise if they popped. So, um, and I think there are a few other, there, there's a few other M size on eBay, uh, definitely that have been sold and are for sale. So, so check it out. And then, so moving along. So the, the next one, as uh, I mentioned earlier, Jeff found the only recently sold Saul 20. So here's one. And there was a few of these available. This is actually the cheaper. I think there was, couple other ones that ranged up to the $2,500 ones. So this one is $16,999 or $16,99 rather. Buy it now. It looks like it's in great shape. It's fairly complete. It looks like, it doesn't say a whole lot, but it needs a personality module to boot. So you would have to source that. You know what? I don't think that'd be that tough Yeah, to get one of those. Do you think? The I personality mean, module? Yeah. Um, I bet you I there's some of those know. floating around somewhere. Oh, you know what? It's also missing the... Um, Missing the label. It looks like it was repainted. The label, it does, doesn't it? It looks, yeah, kind of an ugly blue if that color is correct. Yeah, I don't know if it's his lighting. No, I think your eye has been repainted. It's ugly. 
He <laughs> <laughs> didn't repaint the wood grain, so that's good. And I wonder if it comes with that uh, that monitor too. I don't think so. And then he made like a four picture little grouping, but didn't the picture of it opened up? He didn't include that by itself, so you could really zoom in on it. It's not terrible; you can kind of see. But there you go. So I guess for a nicer soul or Saul, you're looking at like over two grand. Other than that, that prize you found. Yeah. And it makes me wish I had, A, that kind of money to spend, and B, was watching it at that time. But it's always about timing. It really is. And it, it is. And also, and if you set, a, you set like a like a maximum, like, I'm just not going to pay more than this, and you and you watch carefully, you can, you know, you can see these things going by at two grand, and I bet you, you know, it might take you a few months, but then you watch it and be careful about it. You could probably pick one up for another six $800. Yeah, I have to watch it. Because all the time I've seen that happen, like say with Apple leases, where they can get you know, it constantly be sixteen two grand or more, and then and then here's one for seven hundred. It's really it actually works and it's in good shape. And why didn't it get you know? Because somebody miscategorized it. You know, I've, yeah. there's some things in the past I bought because it was in the wrong category, but I was patient enough just to go through and look, and I actually saw it not doing a direct search. I just saw it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is neat. I've always wanted something like this, and you know, whatever it may have been. It could have been an electronic game or something, and but the price is really good. And then I was like the only bidder, and I don't know why I got it until I realized, oh, they had it miscategorized, so nobody really found it. What are our computers next time? I'm looking. Do you know? No. Oh, here we go. Now these are these are up for debate, quite frankly, because one of them I think will will I'll tease everybody. (laughs) I think one of these we'll probably easily agree on. The other one. Maybe we might discuss this. I'm not saying I'm against it, but I don't know. Anyway, one of them, the next two up here are the Heathkit H8. What do you think? I kind of think you're probably agreeable to that. Yep. The other one is the NASCOM 1. What do you think about that? I hope you can find information to look look up for. I don't know. We'll we'll figure out who's going to do what. So tentatively, it's the the H8 and the NASCOM 1, but subject to change. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, if we can't find any any information, you know, what what good is it to uh, talk about it? Well, I can find some information. Okay. And um, remember, Earl mentioned that book of his, the book he liked a lot last time. Yes. Yeah, so it's in there, <laughs> digital retro. Well, it's it's our duty to our listeners to look for this stuff. After I, all, this is this is a history of personal computing, and if that was in history, it needs to be talked about. I guess I'll share a secret, Jeff. Is that this list? originated it's not the exact list of the machines in digital retro but that was the foundation of where this list came out of okay so so that's why it's in there (laughs) (laughs) if nobody else heard about it they'll learn from us so that's about it right our next show will release on friday october 17th Woo! you can find our evolving guide and all show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com you can also send feedback please to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. We really, really, really want to hear from you by email, just like Jerome did, um, or send an audio comment. Yeah, please consider also, sending an audio comment. Most everybody's yep. machine has this capability. Fire up your phone, record something, you, send it to us. If our email as, box gets filled, we'll make room. You know what? On the show here, let's discuss this a moment. Jeff, can't you get like a free, like a Google sort of like a, an online voicemail sort of thing where someone can literally just call a number and leave us um, messages that way. I don't see why not. Isn't there a free way we could do that? Do you think that would yeah, instill more people? Something with 
with Google Voice. We should try to do that. Yep. All right. You heard it here, folks. Also, as we uh, cover these computers, we will love to receive your high-quality pictures of the machines we've covered. So please start sending them in. If you have a Sol 20, please send us some pictures. You have yeah, we need more pictures. Send us some pictures. We just love pictures. Also, please write a review on iTunes. And that's about it. We'll see you next time. See ya. Goodbye, David. Bye, Jeff.